This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Jesus and his disciples went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. You all can have a seat. It is so good to be with all of you uh, this morning. Welcome to church, y'all. Uh, welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if we haven't met, um, hi, my name's Ashley. I'm the priest and pastor here, and we're thrilled to have you uh, with us this morning. We've been uh, here in our church and in churches everywhere going through the season of Epiphany together. Um, Dan, I might have a heat stroke up here. I don't know. Are y'all hot? Is it just me? Are we comfortable? It's warm up here. Is it warm? We're warm. Thank you. Okay, great. <laughs> just pass right out the very beginning of it. We even got started. Um, we uh, have been making our way through the church calendar, and uh, here in liturgical churches all over the world, uh, we follow the church calendar. It sort of sets our rhythm for our life together. It also, um, the church calendar helps us look at the life of Jesus through particular lens so that we can like re be reminded not only of things that happened, but how those things that happened in the life of Jesus are meant to have this like ongoing meaning for our lives. Um, how they become for us a source, and at least according to this season, of even revelation, like ongoing revelation of faith. So um, in this season of Epiphany, that's exactly the focus, is the hope that um, God would be glorified, that he is made manifest and revealed in the person of Jesus. That's uh, the whole point of the season. The word epiphany comes from a Greek word that means manifestation. And so the season is meant to remind us, and if you've been here week after week, forgive me, we have um, those who have not, so it's like we've heard this lady, but you'll know what epiphany means after this for sure. And I repeat it week after week. Um, it means manifestation, and what is being manifest is the glory of God in the person of Jesus. We get to see God uh, for who he is. We get to see him in his glory through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And so it raises questions about what God's glory really is and means. And so we've said in weeks past, you know, that what we see in Jesus, of course, among many things, his brilliance, his kindness, all of that, his justice, um, all of that is the love of God. It is love, period, writ large, in the life of Jesus. That is God's glory, is his undefeatable love, his power. And so we see that over and over manifest in the person of Jesus. And so last week we looked at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and in particular his calling of the first disciples. We talked about hell. We talked about evangelism. It's a spicy week uh, if you weren't here. Um, and we're talking about demons this week, so, you know, they just keep coming, I guess, um, for us. The beginning of his ministry, 
When Jesus gets started manifesting the glory of God, he does that by calling people um, to follow him. Yes, but it's more than that. Jesus is going about, quite literally, giving out invitations to people to experience a new kind of life. I mean, the way that, if you put yourself in the position of Peter, James, and John, the way that they experienced and encountered Jesus was not like, you know, they didn't realize, well, this is discipleship, that, you know, and the way that we understand it. You know, they had this encounter of Jesus, and then their whole life changed. Jesus invited them into something that would change the trajectory of who they are, of how they thought about God, of how they saw themselves. And so the reason that I want to like underscore that before we move to the passage today is because um, really Mark, here at the beginning of his gospel, is lifting up two things for us um, to hold side by side one another, which is to say when God is glorified, part of his revealing, his manifesting his glory is both to call out and create new life, which he does through the calling of the disciples. And then now also, like immediately following that, there's a story about Jesus going into a synagogue and confronting evil and casting it out. So for us, we want to just hear at the very, very beginning, as we think about these passages together, these stories together, for God to be glorified, at least in part, Mark saying two things. He's glorified both in the creation of new life in people and he's glorified in the confrontation of evil and deliverance. He's going to create new life, and he's going to deliver us, which is fascinating because we talked about this before, and this is just as an aside, but in the creation story, in John 1, 1, um, John the apostle, I think he had a kind of epiphany himself when he realized that what God did in the story of creation was exactly what Jesus began to do in his life through his ministry, which is both an act of new creation and an act of deliverance which we've talked about Genesis 1 that way. You remember, it's like we had this wad of chaos, and then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and so there was new creation, and all that chaos got put into place, got pushed back so that new life could emerge. If that was happening in the original creation in Genesis 1, like John had this moment of going, oh my God, that's exactly what was happening in the life of Jesus. He also was bringing new creation and he was pushing back chaos, confronting evil, things that ought not to be where they were, pushing them back. And so God is glorified in that. He was glorified in it in the story of creation and now he's being glorified in it again through the life of Jesus. When I look at the story from last week, which we ended up kind of pivoting, at least the emphasis fell on the call to evangelism, our motivations for doing that. But if we think about it um, through this like invitation to new life, I just want to highlight for you um, that for Peter, James, and John in, in particular, this invitation to, like, I'll make you fishers of men, um, which can mean a lot of things, arguably, to a lot of people, and we have all kinds of associations and histories, no doubt, associated with that metaphor. But in the first century, and the way that Jesus intended it, the invitation to be a fisherman was the invitation to become a rabbi, like he was. Rabbis were known as sort of shorthand as fishermen, um, that's, they would, you know, they catch people, and not in a negative way, but they're like, you're caught and you're taught. That's the whole idea. Um, you become a student of a rabbi. Uh, you become a fisherman. And so for Jesus, the invitation was that they would become like him, a rabbi like him. And so with that invitation to become like Jesus, there was a whole new imagination for who they were, for what their life could be about. And I want to say to you, that wasn't just for Peter, James, and John, and that didn't just happen for them once. That invitation also exists for us and in an ongoing way, just like it did for them. 
Specifically, y'all think about Peter. You know, he had this sort of initial encounter with Jesus in which he had an original like epiphany, like an aha moment. He got it. This guy's worth following. God's at work in him in some way. But that wouldn't be the last time he would have a revelation of Jesus. You can probably call some of them to mind if you were to think about his life. You know, I suspect. When he stepped out of that boat and felt the waves be solid under his feet, that that was a moment of epiphany or revelation for Peter. Jesus probably looks different from that vantage point, you know, if it's just the two of you out on the waves. I suspect there was another moment of epiphany or revelation for Peter when he watched Jesus bend down and pick up Malchus's ear. Wait, who's my enemy? Who's he for? Who am I against? Who is this Jesus? You know, another one by the fireside when he maybe had not only an epiphany of Jesus, but of himself. I'm a coward and a traitor in a way I didn't know. And then on the other side of the resurrection, that he would be the rock upon whom Jesus would found his church. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? ongoing revelations of who Jesus is. And the exciting thing to me about Epiphany, if I could be so bold for all of us, is that, God, that can't just be true for Peter. This season is an encouragement for me to say, like, would you want more? Do you want to see more? You want to know more, understand more, perceive more? And with that encounter of Jesus, is your life could it be more? Could you have new imaginations, new possibilities? And I'm not just talking about like surrendering to ministry or even like, you know, becoming a better person. I mean actual new imagination for your whole life, y'all. New possibilities that extend in a lot of different directions. It's not just about our jobs. And it's not just about like our Christian spirituality. It's about a lot of things. It's about all things, <laughs> actually. This has been true in my own life. Like if I kind of like look back, there were these moments of epiphany or revelation with Jesus, which I can sort of mark, you know, at the age of nine, this is when I like had this aha moment as a kid. And it was real. And, you know, for all of our, you know, whatever that meant and the way I would think about it differently now than I did then, it was genuine, sincere. I had an experience of Jesus. I would have another one later, I can kind of like, that, where I would choose to like, okay, I guess I'm going to follow him now. Faith is one thing. Following Jesus is a different thing, you know? I'm going to like choose to get in line behind him, I guess. There have been all kinds of these moments. I was thinking about uh, one this morning, just because I have some friends here visiting from Atlanta. But, you know, if I'm like looking back at my life, these epiphany moments that really did change the trajectory, maybe a yes of how I live my life, but how I see the world. Um, and one of those was in 2016, I remember I had a rare Sunday off. Um, I, we don't know one another. I moved, Josh and I, about a year and a half ago from Atlanta. That's where I've spent my adult life, uh, pastoring there. And um, I had a Sunday off, and so I wanted to visit it. There was a new church in our old neighborhood on the southwest side of the city, um, in the West End, which is a historically black city, or black neighborhood in Atlanta. And um, Josh and I, Josh taught in that neighborhood, loved that neighborhood, and everybody was reeling, and particularly the black community reeling, because there had been a string of deaths that summer, shootings. Um, black folks dying at the hand of police, and a lot of people confused, frustrated, hurt. 
Um, and so I had this Sunday off, and I wanted to go worship in this new church that was in our na- old neighborhood. And I got there for church that Sunday, and um, the pastor was preaching um, in Acts, in the early chapters of Acts, and he was preaching about uh, racial divisions in the church and about racial injustice, and even as powerfully and profoundly about like this beautiful, powerful gospel reality that was the early church that had this redemptive power to heal and unite across what seemed like impenetrable lines of division, to create new life and healing and new family. Like what a powerful, powerful thing. What a cool thing. If we could only go back to Acts and be a part of something like that. (laughs) Same gospel, same Jesus, same redemptive potential power possibility. And I remember hearing him preach that message, and at the end of it, um, I was different. Um, I had a revelation of Jesus, like seeing him differently, his gospel differently, and as a result of seeing him and his gospel differently, my neighbors, my city, myself. That epiphany ongoing epiphany is about like you know it led not only to a new imagination but like new repentance and here's the cool thing about Jesus the repenting at the time felt as liberating y'all and as hopeful as like new revelation and the cool stuff that I was learning both felt so hopeful the devil calls you to a shameful repentance Jesus calls you to a hopeful repentance y'all The repentance of Jesus is full of life and hope and love, and that shame gets shed in the background. He's taking you forwards, not backwards. If you're dragging the devil on your back, that's not repentance. It's going to keep you weighed down, bent down. We said it in the psalm this morning, like, Jesus, help us, Lord. We are conflicted, God, oppressed. We can't stand upright sometimes. The repentance of Jesus, revelations of him help you stand up, look up and out, And that just feels better. Even if you have to acknowledge some things or see some things in yourself and in the world that you'd rather not see. It's just more real. It's more hopeful. Moments like that in my life with him, that's Jesus being glorified. When he's really lifted up and he's glorified, well, then my God, I can see myself and all of us differently in a way that, yes, can lead to repentance and also to new hope. And that's good. So Jesus is glorified in moments like that. And what I love about Mark is that he's going to put both things, like I, Mark moves, he, I'm a three, I live too fast, I walk too fast, I talk too fast, Jesus knows. But I feel affirmed, Mark and I would have been buddies. Because <laughs> Mark tells his gospel fast, he preaches fast, and I like it. So it's like, if you notice in the book of Mark, we're always, we're always moving. Jesus in and out, immediately this, immediately that. And so immediately after Jesus calls his disciples, and it's as if to say, and this isn't this true in our life with God, you have one glorious moment where you're like, yes, full of hope, and then the next minute there's a demoniac in the synagogue, you know? It's just life. It's just the way it goes. You know, glory one minute, devil is the next. And that will be our life with Jesus. And so we talked last week about dealing, y'all, with the reality of evil in the world. And here's what I love and appreciate among many things about this Jesus and about this gospel, about our Bible. It's honest. 
The facts are that Jesus is glorified. He is, man, he is the manifestation of God's glory. Powerful, undefeatable, unconquerable love. And demons in the synagogue. The reality of evil. We're plagued by it. Will be, Jesus knew, even on the other side of his resurrection. We will continue to be confronted by it and live with it. And so what I receive in Mark is the assurance and the hope that Jesus can be glorified in me, both in these new revelations, new life in me, new stuff he's going to do, and also when I am bold and courageous enough to confront evil and to ask to be delivered from it. And I'm thankful that he gives me an imagination and a vision for both of those things. Uh, We get uncomfortable talking about the devil, for good reason. Um, not the least of which is that, you know, again, you always feel like at our worst, we're forced into two extremes. It's like either we're going to like radically overemphasize it and you're hunting for demons under every lampshade and around every corner, or you become so sophisticated and rational in your thinking that you minimize the reality of evil altogether. And so, um, ah, She's always been an Anglican before she knew she could, that she was one. This middle way, it's like trying to find our way. If we got like this false dichotomy of extremes, how do we find our way towards the middle? How can I acknowledge both the reality of evil and not like over sensationalize it at the same time? Um, that's what I see Jesus doing. He is very honest about its reality and he doesn't seem all that dramatic about it, you know? There's a new teaching and with authority. Jesus knew who he was, and he knew what evil was. So here's the thing that I want to humbly submit to you. Last week we talked about, like, just, you can't get around it if you're going to be honest about the Bible, if you're going to be honest about our world, y'all. Evil is a real thing. Judgment is necessary. And so that's true. Evil is real. We all know that, of course. The Bible is going to explain that evil to us, not always in the ways that I wish that it would. How did it get here? Where did it come from? I wish, you know, you could just look that up in the back and in the index, and then it would just give you the answer, and we would know, and then maybe we could, like, root it out or something, make more sense of it. It doesn't explain things that way. We know frustratingly little, it feels like sometimes. And I just want to say to you with... You know, I sit as horrified as you all do, both by the experience of evil in my own life and the way that I see it at work in the world. I mean, dear sweet Jesus, how does a cult leader convince hundreds of people to starve themselves to death? I don't understand. I don't. And I can't go to the Bible for an explanation, at least not a totally satisfying one. Here's what I will say. What I do know when I go to the Bible is, at least this much, is described for me. Evil exists, but it exists also as personal evil. The Bible names the fact that we have an adversary, a spiritual opponent, There is a being, a reality in this world that is opposed to that new life, that new creation in you. And it has been there from the very beginning, the chaos of creation that gets pushed back so new life can come. 
in all of its forms. This opposition has been there, and the Bible's going to name it a lot of different ways. But personal evil, spiritual beings, demons, a Satan, Satan, adversary in Hebrew. We have one, the Bible will say. And in addition to personal evil, there's also suprapersonal evil, this evil that seems to like infect the airwaves. You know, it's like pervasive. It manifests in things like racism. It manifests in things like greed. It manifests in things like war and spiritual abuse. You know, you feel it in the air. And the Bible names both of those realities. And without explaining how they got here or where they come from, what the Bible does do is give us an explanation for how God is dealing with it and has dealt with it. I don't have time to do as much as I would like to on this point. Um, maybe we'll do a class about it soon or sometime. But this book, if you're really curious and conflicted, plagued even by questions around evil, as I have been in the past, I really appreciated this book. It's called Evil and the Justice of God. Um, it was written by um, the good Bishop N.T. Wright, who I've uh, referenced here before. He's been such a mean, important teacher for me, theologically and otherwise. He has this to say about the nature of evil. He says, What the Gospels offer is not a philosophical explanation of evil, what it is or why it's there, not a set of suggestions for how we might adjust our lifestyles so that evil will mysteriously disappear from the world. But it is the story, rather, of an event in which the living God deals with it. God rescues his people from evil in which they are trapped, and he does so through the suffering of Israel's representative, by which he means of Jesus, and his people. In short, y'all, there is a connection between the glory of God, we've said this before, being manifest in Jesus, revealed to us as this unconquerable, all-suffering love, really. Meaning, at his own expense, ultimately, he's going to deal with evil in a way that, by the way, you and I cannot. Our suffering cannot deal with it. I could suffer every day the rest of my life from now until eternity, and I would not, my suffering would not be able to produce the same redemptive effects that Jesus' did. And so some of us have lived too long under the false assumption that if you will just suffer, suffer, suffer endlessly, that there will be some good redemptive good in that. And so just let me say, it's not, our calling is more than that. There is a call for the Christian to sacrificial redemptive love for sure. And it is, y'all, in some way an answer to and a remedy for evil. I believe that. I experienced that in my city and in my neighborhood, sitting in that church even. I am under no illusion that my sort of like awakening to racial injustice had any like maybe long-lasting impact or effects on, you know, racism in our city. But it changed my life and that's not nothing, and it's going to change my son's lives, and that's not nothing. And I pray to God, by whatever grace Jesus would give me, we would be a people who take it seriously, and that ain't nothing in northwest Arkansas. And so I point to it just to say, neither is it all the solution. My suffering is not the redemptive, does not have the same redemptive power that Jesus does. My call to sacrificial love, not the same. And yet the love of Jesus, the work of Jesus, his power, his spirit is at work in it when I'm willing 
to do it. So there's something there. The Bible is going to point to this mystery over and over and over again and say, okay, it's God's to deal with ultimately. But here's the thing I feel compelled to say to you very practically. Ultimate evil and questions of ultimate evil, we have to submit and surrender those to God in hopes of ongoing epiphany and revelation. But for you in your daily life, here's what I want you to know. I believe that for some of you, the Lord would like to reveal himself, be glorified even in your life by inviting you through his spirit to confront and deal with some evil at work in your life. And I say this to you humbly. Again, I am a very rational person, arguably sometimes too rational. Holy Spirit has to remind me all the time that I am both brain and heart and spirit. And so at the great risk of sounding like a wild charismatic, let me submit to you that humbly you have an enemy and an adversary, y'all. You do. And that does not mean that every hard thing happening in your life is the work of the devil. And I am certainly not saying that every person you don't like or experience is demon-possessed. This is not your invitation to finally, with freedom, make a list of all the people you don't like and call them demon-possessed. It's not what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying. I want us to be sober-minded and really think about this. Three things that come to mind for me. Are there situations in your life that are plagued by hostility and chaos? Is there persistent unforgiveness in your heart that you cannot shake? Are you plagued with bad dreams? Here's the thing about the demoniac. The demoniac was a person created in the image of God. In other words, he was territory that belonged to Jesus. That had been temporarily claimed and occupied by an adversary. So when that adversary brought the territory that belonged to Jesus into the synagogue, what Jesus did that morning was with confidence and clarity and peace in his heart, he reclaimed that which belonged to him. He didn't make a big crazy show of it. He just said, that's mine. Belongs to me. Uh, in the Greek, Mark, it's incredible. Um, when Jesus says, you know, in sort of like Charlton Heston fashion, be silent! how I imagine it reading, you know. What he actually says in Greek, it, in Greek is be muzzled. It's their equivalent of shut up. <laughs> Truly. And I wish we would have, why wouldn't we translate it that way? I guess it sounds less reverent somehow or less Jesus-like. But, you know, that's just it. Have you ever been in a room and it was just like noisy and you just want to, you know, with the authority that was rightly yours, like a parent with your children, just, y'all shut up. Shut up. Stop. It doesn't have to be more dramatic than that. And so what Jesus felt with authority was the ability to reclaim that which belonged to him, to deliver his people. Let my people go. 
That refrain in Exodus gets picked up now again by Jesus, who is our new Moses. That's why we read the Old Testament reading. That's what Jesus was doing, let my people go. And I believe that for you, over you, that the Holy Spirit would like to say the same. If, in fact, in any area, particularly those three that we've named, you feel occupied, terrorized, and you will if you don't today. And you need to know that the Lord has not left you bereft or to be forever occupied or terrorized or plagued. He has come to deliver, and that is his glory, is to deliver you. His goodness. I've experienced y'all this deliverance. It's why no matter how rational I am, no matter how much I love books, I will have to be a charismatic for the rest of my life because this Holy Spirit has saved me too many times. Delivered me from dreams when they plagued me. From forgiveness that I could, unforgiveness I could not shake. From a situation that has just continued to feel so chaotic. I know now what to do with things like that. And so you need to know what to do. You can confront it with the same kind of clarity and peace and authority because the same spirit that lives in Jesus not lived, lives in Jesus, raised him from the dead, lives in you. So, you pray, and then you invite people around you who love you to pray. It's not more complicated than that. That's why it matters that we make prayer normal. Sometimes we experience abnormal things, and I need to know that I can come to you and just say, I want rid of these nightmares. Will you reclaim my sleep in Jesus' name? Will you pray it over me and for me? You have people here who will pray that for you, whether you know them or not. So Holy Spirit, we give to you, Jesus, all the territory, Lord, that belongs rightly to you. Ourselves, our lives, our neighborhood and community, with the authority that we have, Lord, only in your name and by virtue of your spirit, we ask you to claim, Lord, that which is rightly yours. Set us free, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.